Morning, church. You know, we're moving right along through Titus. I didn't know how quickly we're moving through. We're in the last chapter of Titus. Even though it's only three chapters, we are there in the middle of that. And we've seen as Paul has written to Titus, one of his great concerns was the church's witness to a pagan world. It's a lost world, it's pagan, and the church has to maintain that witness. The church has the commission from Jesus Christ to take the gospel out into the world. And since we are the salt and the light of the world as Christ operates through us, it says in Matthew 5, to shine before men in such a way that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we're about. That's why we're here. So, the epistle of Titus is tying right into that as he's reminded of this and how we're to function inside the church with the elders and all the people that are in it and then outside the walls of the church. We've seen that operate all the way through Titus and he says that we are to adorn the doctrine to just having it a part of us, wearing it all the time and all aspects of our lives are to be ready for every good deed that we get the opportunity for so that we can make an impact on this lost world around us. Anyway, we're to treat people with the grace, the same kind of grace that He has given us as He has graced that. We are to give grace to others and show those godly virtues that He's worked in our lives and the characteristics and realize that we're to exemplify these in everyday life. And as we deal with unbelievers, deal with people who don't know Christ at all, who have the nature of sin, we have to be reminded, we have to remind ourselves that we too had that same kind of lifestyle. That was our nature. And we saw that last week as we dealt with verse 3. That we used to have those lifestyles and we were delivered from that kind of lifestyle. And if it were not for God's initiating saving grace, if it weren't for that, we would still be in that kind of lifestyle, knowing no other. And we would have wicked natures, having a lost state that we'd be in. So Paul is stressing and intimating to us that to Titus and to us, reminding him of that verse 3, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I mean, it's just absolutely useless. No glory to God. Living for our own. And that's the way we were before we were saved. It's going to take the same grace that saved us. It's going to take that same kind of grace from God to save them. In the meantime, He uses us to exhibit and display His grace here right on earth. So, Paul gives quite a powerful uh, sentence in verses 4-7. through One long sentence. Powerful indeed. In extolling God's great mercy and grace in saving us. Now, we were delivered from those horrible, evil, wicked sins. No matter how bad or how good... They might look. He delivers us from them. Now, verses 4-7, through you'll find one of the most theologically loaded passages in all of the Bible about salvation. 
I'm not kidding you. The, the depth here is is the salvation story right here. And uh, what we're going to do is stress the importance of these deep words that we have here near the end of Titus. They're profound. And they touch from eternity past to eternity future. Sweep across the ages into eternity. And so we see that salvation and how we are saved. How was I saved? He goes through the steps here and shows the main issue in this. Because this is the way we were in verse 3. Remember, that's where we ended last week. Because of the way we were, I want you to remember that, but I also want you to know what it took to get you out of those doldrums that you didn't even know you were in and to bring you out of the muck and the mire and in the dungeon. This is a magnificent passage, this Titus is. And if you look back at the early church, they probably used this as a hymn, maybe as a creed. I certainly think they had it memorized. They knew it very well. They recited it often. And because this tells the story here, this is like a creed. And so we're seeing that it takes God, who is outside of us, to get us out of the dungeon that we were in and we're going to stay in because we couldn't get out of there. And we see that He is independent and He is uninfluenced by anybody in His sovereignty and He saves. Our God saves. We sing that song, right? And so this is what this is. And it just goes through the steps. And it shows the whole work of salvation. And I guess you could say He's going to unfold it in about seven ways. And on the eighth one, he shows where what the whole point is, where it's all headed. So let's read that section. Why don't we just stand for a moment and read Titus 3, starting at verse 4. It has a great big three-letter word to start with. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage. What a rich section it is. May we glean from these truths and take those truths and make them apply to our lives in the way that we think. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, he starts off with that great word that Paul does quite frequently after he's come out of what we were. Then he says, but... Uh, Ephesians 2.4 says, but God. We'll read that in a moment. So he's going back to what verse 3 was. And... The attention is being turned to God. Here's what we were in verse 3. Well, here's what God is. Verse 4 through 7. And then, we don't have it this week, but in verse 8, He's going to come right back. And He says this is a trustworthy statement. That's why we can say this was probably a hymn. And and probably a creed. It's a trustworthy statement. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, you'll see that. This is a trustworthy statement. And... uh, 
it's it's going to show that this is probably what the historical church really knew. I mean, they they read it, memorized it. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. That's that's what we want to do. Here it is while you're here. Here's what you were. Here's what you're going to do now. Because here's what God has done. Look at Ephesians 2.4. And that's a precious passage. Do I can say that? Ephesians 2. In the first three verses, says how dead we are. Verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... What was our nature? Children of wrath. Even as the rest of them are. That's what we were. Children of wrath. You ever thought of yourself being that way? And then, here, here we go. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, He loved us, look at this, in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So, not unlike what we usually teach, the wonderful sovereign grace of God is found in verses 4 through 7. And we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this topic, this subject, and take one of them and do one week on each one of them. But we have covered a lot of these issues quite frequently on, on our Sundays and our Wednesday Bible studies and such. And because of that, we'll just kind of take all of these and kind of put it in one package today. Um, he talks about our old deprived life. And of course, in Romans 3, you can, you can see that. And it tells how our nature is there. None seek after God. None are righteous. No, not one, right? You know, you're familiar with that? Romans 3, 10 through 12. Um, I don't think we would ever understand and appreciate God's grace, that amazing grace, until we saw how much of a wretch each one of us was. How we didn't deserve anything. How lost we were as sinners. And then also see that He intervened in our life. We can't understand that grace, that amazing grace, until we see where we were really at. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, In order to measure the love of God, you want to measure the love of God? You have, you have first to go down before you can go up. You've got to go down and see what you were. You do not start on the level, right on a level playing field. You don't start on that level and then go up from there. We have to be brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit, and unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you're going to be measuring half the love of God. The more that we see how deep and dark we were and dead, the more we see the amazing grace of God. Because we couldn't even reach up our hand to Him and reach it. We were dead. We were deep. Horrible. And then we look at this and we see some glorious verses. So Paul begins to tell us of the abundant love and mercy with the word but. Depths of sin. 
But when the kindness of God our Savior... Let's get on God our Savior for just a moment. Verse 3. Man is active in sin in verse 3, right? Oh, he's active. Look at that. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, uh, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, malice and envy and all that. That's man's actions, isn't it? All of man and not of God. Because he never tempts anyone to sin. At the same time, that's what we did. Now I ask you, would you like to continue with that kind of free will? That's the will that we have. That's what our nature is enslaved to and that's what it's going to do. And that's what free will is. Would you like to stay there? I'm glad it wasn't my will. It was God's will. So as we proceed in this, we're going to glorify God more and more as we look at God our Savior. Our salvation was not due to anything in anything that we did good on the basis of deeds, of course. We know it's not a joint effort and kind of helping out God a little bit. Because, or maybe because we were worth loving. You know? Oh, yeah. He loved me because uh, you know, I was pretty valuable to him. I was pretty precious. Uh, he's precious, but we're not. That's the idea. Uh, but it's because He loved us. He did not save us because He foresaw that we would believe in Him and uh, we would just uh, pursue Him. That would make us, not God, the cause of our salvation. What's the cause of our salvation? God, our Savior. God, our Savior. He's the one who initiated the salvation. He is the Savior. God first loved us, not that we first loved Him. Out of 1 John, right? So now the following. What we're going to concentrate on is give the cause of salvation. What caused your salvation? What caused it? Well, it starts with God's kindness here. Titus says, but when the kindness of God our Savior. Let's look at kindness. I think we would have a tendency to just kind of skip over that and just keep on moving on. Kindness. But no, no, we have to go in and delve into this Word. right? And when you start looking at this Word, you should be amazed. We concentrate on grace. But what about God's kindness? Do you ever see that in any other scriptures in the Bible? Uh, Yeah. Well, we know that God is kind. Let's think about it a little bit. Um, It was and kindness there means the the goodness, the goodness of His heart, the goodness of the heart, that kind of kindness. It was God's kindness that started it, that initiated this whole plan. Do you know that? It's God's kindness. God loves to lavish His kindness on us, not just give a little bit. He wants to put all of His kindness on us. And, and the bigger you get of this concept of His kindness, when you get that in your mind and let it start sinking, you start thinking on it, the more amazing this is. The more amazing God is. We have the bulletins today, Amazing Grace, right? We heard that. Well, here's Amazing Kindness also. Okay, now think about it. How, how can you get there? Okay, God is the Creator of the universe, right? See right in Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created, right? Not only did He create, but He holds the galaxies in His hand. I mean, He's in control of that. I mean, He's the one sustaining the universe. He governs everything. He's even governing this world with human beings on it that are so sinful. And He even governs whenever a little bird falls down from the air. Or He even is sovereign and He knows every change in your hair color or loss of hair. No hair? 
A lot of hair. <laughs> He's infinitely wise, infinitely strong. He's infinitely holy. He's infinitely just. You think of all of those attributes of God. He's infinite in everything. It is amazing. I mean, we get a, a big view of God and then we look at this and God is kind. God's a creator, but God is kind. What if He was a creator God who wasn't kind or was just sometimes kind? He had a little bit of kindness in Him, but boy, He'd have a few mean streaks in Him. Oh, it wouldn't be God, right? Because kindness has to be an attribute of God. But I think we tend to... to Forget the, the kindness of God, and that's what Paul starts with. Because of this kindness, He not only created the universe, but He, he made a new creation out of you. Made a new creation out of you. He, he caused you to be born again. That's pretty kind, isn't it? That's where all this starts. Let your very existence as a Christian tell you every hour of every day God is kind to you. Sometimes we think, you know, maybe he's... Wow, is is that that really God? Would he do stuff like that? Look at Ephesians 2.7. We were just there in Ephesians 2 earlier. But this Ephesians 2 goes right along with our Titus passage. So good. We we cut off at at the end of verse 5. And and in verse 6, it says, Raised him up and seated us up seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here we go. Verse 7. Ready? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in what? Kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, was He ever rich in grace. And He shows that. He demonstrates it even through us, toward us. Riches of His grace in kindness. He was kind to give us His grace. Wow. Look in Luke 6, 35 and 36. Back to a Gospel here. This is how God expects us to be in our kingdom way of living. Because this is the way He is. He says, but love your enemies. Remember, he, whenever He died for us, we were still His enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Sounds like grace, doesn't it? And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Now that goes against the nature who is who is kind to ungrateful and evil men? Well, it starts with God. Actually, He expects us to do that too, doesn't He? Love your enemies. Do good to them. That's backwards. <laughs> I'll feel like a wimp if I do that. Let them take advantage of me. And yet God says that He is kind to evil men. Woo. Let's look at Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Kind of God is God... Well. He is sovereign in everything that He does. It's all sovereign grace, but at the same time, He commands everyone everywhere to repent, as it says in Acts. 
He holds everybody accountable to their own sins because they sin and Jesus never tempts them to sin. God the Holy Spirit never tempts them to sin. The Father never tempts them to sin. Never makes them sin. It's all on their own actions that they choose to do in their own free will. (laughs) Romans 2 says this, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His what? Kindness. He didn't give us a little bit, folks. He just lavished on us the riches of His what? His kindness. And look at this. Tolerance and patience. Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. People will repent because the kindness of God is the one that drove them there. But because of your stubbornness. Now he gets on their... Here's what God does, but here's what man does. And how does that jive with God's sovereignty? I can't tell you. I can't give you that answer because I cannot get into the infinite mind of God. He commands everybody to repent, but yet only the ones that can come to Him are the ones who the Father has drawn. How do you, how do you reconcile those? We can't. But if we were to get into an infinite mind, a spiritual mind, and think the way that God thinks, we would know exactly. And it would be just and right and holy and good in every aspect, wouldn't it? But the thing is, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go hand in hand. They are close. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The more they sin, and it's like here's the other here's the human way of looking at it. God is patient. He is so kind. He's given all of his what the richness of his kindness to them, and he's tolerated all of their acts and been patient. But he says, you just keep doing what you do, and I will judge you. And whenever they come before the, the judgment seat of God, the white throne, they will bring their works to Him. And all they'll really have to, to show is their own selves. Their wicked, evil selves with their so-called good works. Because that's all they'll have to offer. He says, what you're doing, you're storing up wrath. And more the, and the more and more and more you sin, the more you're going to be judged on a harsher role. Wow. You can say, well, that isn't very kind. Yes, it is. God is very kind. They don't want to take His kindness. They don't want, his, they don't want the kindness of God that leads to repent because they do not want to repent. They have it not in their own minds. So they will be held accountable when they come there and say, well, God... You're you're the one who put us, you're the one that made us do that. You're the one who made us sin. And he'll say, I was kind to you. I called you to repentance, but you did not want to come. Anybody who wants to come to Christ can come to Christ. So Dennis, that sounds awful different than the way you talk about. I haven't changed a bit. That's what we're saying. The ones who will come are the ones who have been taken out of that muck and mire like everybody else is going to. They all deserve to go there. Why would He put anybody in there with Him, right? That's the question. They're held responsible. But God is a kind God. 
That's not contradictory. Because if he was if he was kind all the way through eternity to them in the sense that he never judged them, then we would have them with us in heaven, them hating God and hating everything about him, what he is, and all of his people. And how would you like to spend eternity with people who don't want to be there? Wow. God is a kind God to us, isn't he? Look in Romans eleven twenty two. God is just and fair in every way, but He is also a kind God that has driven us to repent. That was all His action that did that. You know that? It was His kindness that started that. Behold then the kindness, and look at this, here we go, and severity of God. Do you see two extreme words there? God can be kind and He can be severe at the same time? Well, yeah. Because if He didn't if He didn't hold to His justice, then He would not be God. He has to be just. He has to judge sin. Behold in the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you. Look at this. God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise, you also will be cut off. Wow. That's the Romans 11 dealing with Israel and what about them. One who is a true believer will show that his kindness has been put into their lives. They will continue on. They will persevere. God will preserve them all the way through. He will keep them through that. But the ones who think they are and they don't remain, they show that they never were of us. 1 John chapter 2. They walk away. Acts chapter 28 verse 2. Still dealing with kindness. What a word, right? We don't talk about that word much. I must admit, I haven't talked about it much. We sure should, shouldn't we? The natives... Okay, this is on the island of Malta. This is where Paul was at. The natives showed us, look at this, extraordinary kindness. That's that same word. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. These are natives. These are natives that could have killed them. You know, you know these guys that are coming off the shipwreck, <laughs> and they they come in there and they take care of them, take care of Paul. extraordinary kindness. It's incredible. That's the very nature of God, and God put it on them to be kind to them. This is an attribute of God. God is innately good. It's built into. He can't do anything that's bad. You know that He does things that are always good. Always good. Even when He has to judge, that's a good thing. He is kind to unworthy sinners. Thank you, Lord. I'm an unworthy sinner and He is kind to me. He's kind in saving me and then kind in keeping me. Well, that's the first one. Ready for the second one? Okay. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. So we have kindness, now we go into love. You can say, well, it's the same thing, right? Well, it's very much related. Appeared. I think this is interesting. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love, let's say kindness appeared. Love appeared. He doesn't say, he does mention God our Savior, but what appears? Kindness appears. Now we've talked about that before in chapter 2. Uh, verse 11. Just back a few weeks ago. For the grace of God has appeared. 
The grace of God. Grace appeared. It's like a personification. It's, it's the very person of Christ. It's not just an attribute of God. He is... Don't we sometimes call Him... He is love. Did you know He is also... He is kindness. Kindness appeared. Whenever He came to earth as a man in the incarnation, kindness appeared. Look, there's kindness. He is kindness. He is love. Right? So it's not just an attribute, it's the very person of Christ. Grace appeared, kindness appeared, love appeared. The kindness and love of God appeared. It means that if they simply, if those attributes just simply stay there in the being of God and don't come down from heaven, and, and they don't come down from heaven and take human form like these right here, like this kindness. If it doesn't take human form among us, then He would save nobody. So kindness took on a human body. It didn't just stay up in heaven, but He had to come here as well as love. Now, now it's interesting. Now, He says kindness of God, our uh, Savior, and His love. So we have kindness, now we have a love. This is the second one now. He saves us on the basis of what? Kindness. So it starts with kindness. Let's follow that as it just keeps on going. Then on the basis of love. Not on the basis of what we did. Yeah, but I believed in Him. On the basis of what? Not kindness. On the basis of love. Now the word this time is not agape. Every time you see the word God and love, you always think of agape, don't you? I do. That's not the word this time. The word is philanthropia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? English word. It means pity. It means to have compassion on somebody. To desire to bring somebody out of pain. To deliver them from whatever situation they're in. When we think of the the agape, we think of God's sacrificial love. It's related, but it's yet a different word this time. And you don't really run into this word very often in the Bible. He is kind to evil men, right? We've already pointed that out. And His kindness, His kindness causes Him to have a strong affection or strong compassion or a strong pity to save people from a wretched condition. Do you get that? His kindness causes him to have this strong kind of philanthropic love for people that have a wretched condition like us. Oh, we were wretches. Remember you used to sing that in, in, in the hymns? What a wretch. What a wretch. So he acts in pity and compassion. Let's go to Acts 27 verse 3. This is how he saved us. This is where it started. Now, you've got a voyage that's going to Rome. Paul, on this voyage. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul with consideration or guess what? Philanthropia. Treated us with a compassion and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. 
a compassion or delivering him from his situation, the, the pity for him there. Uh, a compassion is the idea. Consideration is used there. It's probably a good translation. At least mine does. In Luke 15.20, oh, everybody's familiar with this. We have in Luke 15, and that might even jump out at you right there, that one is the prodigal son. You can take certain chapters out of the Gospels and remember, that, oh, that's the, yeah, Luke 15. Oh, that's the prodigal son. You know, everybody knows particular ones. So sometimes it's good to sit around memorizing certain places where they're at and you can, you can kind of turn there when you need to. Luke 15, verse 20. Okay, prodigal son is coming back. The lost son is, is, has come back. So he got up, got out of the muck and mire he's in, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. That's the thought we're thinking right here. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now this is the father that had given the money to his son. The money, uh, really, that should have been an inheritance that was given after... The father died, but he gives it to him beforehand, lets him run off, and what does he do with it? He squanders everything and lives a horrible life. And then that's whenever we see him here and we see the father having a compassion on this sinner that doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it at all, does he? He doesn't deserve to be kind because look what he did. But look at the compassion that is there. What causes that? God's a perfectly holy God. And he, could have, he can judge sin, judge that sinner, judge all sinners, but He is kind and He patiently forbears the sin of man, desiring Him to repent. Compassion for the miserable sinner. Miserable sinner, He has compassion. He loved this evil world. We think of John 3.16, for God to love the world. He loved this evil world and sent His Son to people that were not so lovable. (laughs) We were not lovable at all. Remember, we were enemies. Wicked. But it was God that was so loving. Us not deserving a thing. The fact that He loved sinful rebels, doesn't that show the magnitude of His great love? If we can... Just get the idea of how miserable we were. We start to see His kindness and His love in a lot bigger tone than we ever saw before. The color becomes brighter. And the more you know Him, you know these attributes, you know who He is, and the more you see yourself still struggling with sin, you see the great love and kindness of God just being magnified more than ever. You know it? Might be another reason why we still have to live on this earth as we go on through because we start to see faintly a little bit more than we did before. But eventually, we will take off all the glasses and uh, have glorified bodies and we'll see Him as He is and we'll be like Him. And guess what? We won't even have to think about what we once were. Sometimes it's good to be reminded of that. Don't dwell on it because you really need to be dwelling in the heavenlies. But sometimes it's good to be reminded that's what I once was because what that does now glorifies God. Wow. So, now the next one makes sense also. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, 
which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. That'll be the third one. He saved us on the basis of kindness, on the basis of love, on the basis of the foundation of mercy. So with that last thought, we see that salvation is not based on our good deeds, but on His kindness and His love and His mercy which initiated everything. God is rich in mercy and we could turn to that. We just saw it a while ago in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. We've seen that He's rich in kindness. We know He's rich in love. Pours it out. What else does He have? A richness in mercy. Just overabounding. The word is teleos. It means a word that's associated with misery. When you think of the mercy of God, think of your past misery that you were in. That's how you relate. It's the condition of the sinner. He's he's actually what? He's miserable. He's really miserable. A wretched condition. And God is so compassionate, He can go and recover a sinner. Bring him to life. That's what we'll begin into. Mercy looks at misery. You say, well, what's the difference between that and, and, and grace? And we've been covering this on our first Peter passage in chapter 1. I think we spent a couple of weeks on that. But grace looks at the guilt. Mercy looks at what? Remember that M word? What is it? Mercy and what? Misery. We're miserable. Grace looks at the guilt. They're related, but they're different. Grace looks at the guilt. Of course, when when you put those two together, we know that we see a difference, but yet there's forgiveness done. Um, we are guilty, and He removes the guilt from us. He could take us out of the misery, but then He also comes in with the grace, and the the uh, guilt is now removed. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast away. Miserable, wicked sinners. First Timothy chapter one. Just a couple of books back from Titus. First Timothy, chapter one, verse twelve. Here's Paul speaking to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me. Why? Because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. This is Paul, the righteous one. I mean, if anybody's righteous, wasn't it this guy? In Philippians chapter 2, I think we get how righteous he thought he really was. But he found out later. Yet, I was shown what? Here's our word. Mercy because of the misery he really was in, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace, now we get another key word, right? Grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. The faith that we have is found in Christ. It's not us. 
Love in Christ. It's a trustworthy statement. And this might have been a memory verse. Might have been a creed. Might have been a hymn. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save... What? Sinners. Among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says that. He came to save sinners. Yet for this reason, I found what? Mercy. He realized the miserable condition he was in. So that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If he can save Paul, he can save us. Save us. You know, Paul was lost in his works, which was really his terrible sin, his idolatry, his own works. And there's where the mercy came in. God expressed His loving kindness, or His kindness and His love, I guess you could say. He granted forgiveness to miserable, wicked sinners. And we move on to the fourth one. Saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. Washing of regeneration. He washed us. So after He has brought His kindness, which proceeded to His love, which proceeded to His mercy, then He accomplishes it. He actually accomplished it by an act. And we see it in verse 5. The washing of regeneration. The old life was a filthy, dead corpse. Now, can you imagine how a dead corpse can stink? <laughs> Horrible! And it can get worse and worse. The smell can get worse. Dead is dead. You can't get deader than dead, can you? But we know the smell can. And and the rotten and the corruption can. There comes a cleansing, a washing that we really had to have. And we see a little bit of that idea of the washing in Ephesians 5, verse 26, where it's talking about husbands and wives. He gets into the part about the husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. What an extreme example. Just the way that He loves the church. And gave Himself up for her. Why? So that He might sanctify her. Set her apart. Having cleansed her by the what? Washing of water with the Word. How are we washed? The Word of God. The Word of God cleanses us. The washing of the water of the Word. When that Word was spoke to us, the Gospel, that happened. Go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Back to the Old Testament. 36, verse 25. Then... I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'm going to cleanse you. You'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh 
I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances. This is God's actions. On the basis of His kindness and love and mercy, He accomplishes it by regenerating us, by washing us. The Word of God washes, it cleanses. It's the idea of how and when we were born spiritually. That's, that's what happened. And so God washed off the filth of our sin. Done away with. It's cleansed. All the sin that you ever committed, or will ever commit, washed. So we get that word regeneration. The washing of regeneration. Genesia is in that word, which we get our word Genesis. To be born. It means, and, and we're dealing with Genesia, which is born again. That idea. The sinner's dead. Can't respond. He has to come back to life. Can something come to life on its own? Do you know of anything that's dead that can all of a sudden just come to life? Well, actually, seeds do. <laughs> but of course, God is the one that causes that growth, though. Something from the outside has to cause something to be regenerated. Now, think of generators. <laughs> but even generators have to be started, don't they? They generate, you know, they get the electricity going. The sinner can't bring himself to life. Only God can uh, regenerate him. Let's look in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why should we bless Him? <laughs> According to His... Oh, look at this. What's this? Great mercy. Ah, Peter says great mercy. Peter knew about mercy, didn't he? Uh, he magnifies the mercy. This, this is great mercy. I'm telling you, it's exceeding. I can't even tell you how great it is. Has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Of course, that's proven by the resurrection of Christ. But He caused us to be born again. The mercy caused us to be born again. He regenerated us. Look in James. Uh, no, no, no. Look in First Peter one and and uh, drop down to verse twenty three. We looked at verse three, but look at verse twenty three. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. What's that? That is through the living and enduring Word of God. When the Word of God was brought to you, that's where you were washed and cleansed, regenerated. The washing of regeneration. The Word of God. We're not talking of a baptismal here. Nothing wrong with baptisms. We do that. We believe in that. But uh, this is another dry baptism. This, this washing. Some will try to project this thought, uh, folks. That is not what we're talking This is how you were spiritually born. And you, you read context. You, you read through the text where you're at. You don't make something try to fit your own doctrine. You say, okay, what's the writer say, saying here? What's going on? Well, he's telling us how we were born again. It wasn't because we stepped into water 
and got dunked or got sprinkled or whatever. That's not how we're born again. That's that's the water. We take this Lord's Supper, you know, and does some kind of magical thing happen when we take those ingredients? No, not at all. But it's symbolic. There, there's something that's that's real that represents what happened to us spiritually. And so people take things physically and and make them more than what they are and turn them into say that being that's the very blood of Jesus right there. I mean, it turned into that right there. That's no longer juice anymore. It's that's the blood right there. And see, that's his body right here. This this is really his flesh, and this is not a cracker anymore. It's all gone, and and the very body of Christ is right there. Same way with baptism. People take baptism, they'll take a structure, and later on, and when we study Peter, we'll see there's. Uh, Lutherans are really bad at this. They'll take a, a verse in there, I think Second Peter, and deal with baptism and show that uh, you're, you're born again because, because of that water. The baby gets baptized and that's how they regenerate. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's not what, what uh, Paul's talking about here. It's, this is a rebirth. A renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what we're getting into next here. Um, in Ephesians two five, we read earlier, we're still talking about that regeneration. Um, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. Do you catch that? Born again, alive. We were dead. We are alive. We were dead in our transgressions. Now made us alive. I keep saying that but because that's a regeneration. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the very Word of God, the very Word of truth, and it is active. And we are passive when that comes, when that happens. We don't exercise our free will to be born again any more than Lazarus did whenever he was in the tomb and he walked out of there. And that was not his free will to come out of there. By the way, he would not have wanted to do that. He's in the presence of the Lord and you're going, what? What? What am I doing here? There's Jesus, so that was okay. But listen, you know, I don't want to go back there. But he didn't choose to come out of there anyway, but he was commanded by Jesus to come out of there. That's a perfect picture of what happens to us coming out of death to life. But he wasn't dead spiritual. Lazarus was, was a believer, but it's a good picture. Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth! And there comes Lazarus walking out of the dead. <laughs> Only a supernatural God could do that to bring somebody out of the dead. Are you kidding me? That's regeneration, isn't it? The only thing is, he probably I guess he had to die again. <laughs> so he had a double death. huh? But uh, hey, that was probably fine with him. I'm sure it was because he got to be of the Lord again. I don't know what happened after that. But it's just in the Scripture. That's what it says. You go, okay. Okay, the fifth one. All this is accomplished also by the renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's the next logical step. If, if we have been regenerated... The effect of the regeneration is new life. And new life emerges out of a a new birth, a born again, as a result of the Word and the Spirit. So we have the Word of God, the Spirit of God. We we are new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. Right? Wow. 
That's an amazing thing to be thinking about. You know, we have an absolute new identity when when we become uh, born again. We have new longings, new aspirations. We don't have the same kind of desires we used to have. We don't have the same kind of passions we once had. We have new affections. And over the course of time, it's amazing how things just really change. It changes right at that outset. That's the work of the Spirit. And as he says here, the Holy Spirit, renewing by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing you can do, gain, work here, he says. God just pours it out. It's exceedingly abundantly. And so by the new birth, we get an abundance of blessings through the presence of the Holy Spirit who comes in, not only gives us life, but He sustains our life. He empowers our life. He ultimately guarantees that we will be brought to eternal glory. We have that, uh, that guarantee right now. Ephesians 1.13 points that out. We are regenerated through the work of the Spirit and the Word of God. And Jesus said, you have to be born again, Nicodemus. That's the way that you get into the kingdom. So the Spirit is, the, the spirit is poured out upon all of us who believe in His fullness. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Paul makes that clear in Romans 8 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I mean, that's very clear. The only thing is, we are, to, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us, He dwells in us. But to let Him control or to be filled, to let Him fill up the sail with wind, we, you know, we, we want to be submissive to the Word of God. And then we're filled with the Spirit of God. He pours it upon us. Look in John 6, 63. We're right at the end here, guys. Six sixty-three. It is the Spirit who gives life. Talking about born again and the new life, right? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is the chapter where he turned the 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 loaves and the fish and multiplied them into in defeating thousands of people, right? And they're wanting to be fed and they see Him the next day and that's the context here. And they're, they're after Him to get food. And hey, listen, we just follow Jesus the rest of our lives here. You know, He'll feed us, He'll take care of us and do everything. And that's what they were wanting. They wanted to just follow Him around just for the fact of uh, some of the great miracles that He does. And He says, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh Things of the flesh, the physical things, they profit nothing. I mean, they help us get along in this life, but spiritually, that's a total different thing. Okay, uh, one other one here. We can't forget the central piece. Whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We've seen God our Savior now we see Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is all accomplished by the work of Christ. The person and the work of Christ. Jesus came to pay the ransom 
for sin and He conquered death. He satisfied the justice that the Father has. The work is finished. God is pleased as He crushed His Son because it did what He wanted to do. It was perfectly done. That's the expression of the Father's love. That He would send His Son to do to accomplish what all had been already set forth. The basis of His kindness, love, mercy. And then we see also in Titus that not only because of those, then He accomplishes it by the washing of regeneration, the renewing by the Holy Spirit, and then the work of Christ. The perfect one without sin, which He had to be, that was active obedience. His passive obedience was done at the cross, even though that's pretty active. He says, uh, listen, the Father says, I want to give you this humanity that I'm going to redeem. We're going to redeem and I'm going to give them to you that I've chosen forever and ever. And this is going to go into glory. And they will praise you. They will honor you. They will praise you, give you glory. You're going to go to the earth. You're going to pay the price for their sins. And that's what He did. Because the justice had to be satisfied. The wages of sin is death and somebody had to die. And there wasn't anybody ever that had been perfect. It had to be God and so he paid the wages. He satisfied the justice of God. Death was conquered. And it's through Jesus Christ our Savior that he saved us. So there's the act there. God come to earth on the cross, died. And then in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, not merited to us, not because of our faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It's the channel. It's how we are able to get to Him. Grace deals with what? Guilt. Mercy deals with what? Misery. Grace deals with the guilt. The sin that we have. Grace says you're pardoned. Grace says you are forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ. Grace takes the righteousness of God that's in the person of Christ, puts His righteousness on us, imputes it to us, counts it as being righteous, us as being righteous, puts it to our account, and declares us righteous. You are declared righteous before the holy God of the universe because of Christ. His righteousness. That's the atonement, folks. We have looked at the grand doctrine of the atonement in the space of an hour. That's wonderful. He paid the price. Our sins are removed. Justice is fully satisfied. The work has been done because when we think of His kindness and His love and His mercy and His grace, they all act freely. We didn't coerce Him to do any of that. And we're justified by His grace in giving us what we do not deserve. Is this humbling? 
And yet, it makes you joyful, doesn't it? You say, yeah, I would have made a mess if I would have tried to save myself. <coughs> Couldn't have done it. Prayers is justified. The meaning will be is just an, an extension. It's the whole justification by faith, but it's all of salvation. And here, here's the last one. We wrap this up. It's it's too bad we only have a minute, but uh, yeah, it says 59 minutes and 30, 40 seconds. I got 20 seconds. Okay. <laughs> this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently. That's in verse eight. That's where we're heading next week because of all these things. But look at this. While we're going to be doing things here, that's the reason I read that, while, while, while we're going to have to do good deeds here because Christ is working in us and because we want to do that, verse 7 says, but if you keep looking at the fact that you are heirs according to the hope of eternal life, it really motivates you. And I think we've spent, I don't know how much time on the motivation of the second coming of Christ. That always is there. You can't avoid it. That's the greatest motivation of what He's done and what He's going to do when He comes back. And us being heirs, I want to tell you, we're ending on a grand note. If all of this wasn't good enough, and this seems to go along with First Peter a lot, doesn't it today? Heirs. All that is Christ is ours. That's what's being protected. And in First Peter chapter one, if you want to check that out, and say what that, that just doesn't sound right, uh, we're talking about what He's got for us that He's keeping us for, and we are brothers with Christ. Romans eight talks about us being heirs, heirs right along with our brother Jesus Christ. We do not experience that kind of thing in this life. It's laid up for us in heaven. Eternal life has started. And we do have Christ, but what is remaining and what is really what it's all about throughout eternity, we will experience what those riches in Christ are. You you feel some of them now. You experience some of them now. You have an idea what they are. You know what they are mentally. But one of these days, the utter, utter fulfillment of those riches in Christ. We have the hope of eternal life now. First Peter 1.13 talks about that hope of eternal life, which is associated with grace. <laughs> the reason we have that hope is because of the grace of God. Folks, if that doesn't get you motivated, I don't think there will be anything that will motivate you. Because this is truth. It's not coming from Dennis. We just went down through each word and each term and he's building it up. And uh, I think to these people on the island of Crete must have been highly encouraged. He saved us. Who gets all the glory? God does. Meditate on it. Meditate on His kindness, His love, His mercy. And that's... I'm gonna, we'll have a quick... Lord's Supper little um, thought and it's going to be right here we've already done it we will do the song and then we'll go into that and I will not comment anymore because all of that is really leads up because the Lord's Supper is a time to be reminded again and again of what He did for you totally by His grace Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit. Thank You for coming into our lives and changing us and to be like Christ. For that is 
what we are aiming for. That's where you're going to put us. Thank you, Lord, for such deep, profound truths. And may they all impact every one of us. May it truly form us more and more into that mold of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.